Hey, everybody, Steve here, Local Level Podcast. Today, I'm sitting here with Elizabeth Ricks, Legal Director and Staff Attorney, Trans Life Care Program, Chicago House and Social Service Agency. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Chicago House itself, and then if you want to get into you know, what, what the work is that you do there. Yeah, so Chicago House was founded 35 years ago when the AIDS epidemic was just starting to hit the United States. And it started out as just housing for folks who were dying of AIDS and who had been kicked out of their homes. So it was a small community project and now it's grown and thankfully people aren't dying of AIDS in the way that they were during the epidemic. So now it provides services for people who are living with HIV and AIDS. We own three properties that folks are housed in. We also do housing outside of those properties, connecting people with housing services, STI testing, and then our trans life care program provides uh, collaborative care model services for trans and gender expansive people. So mm -hmm. we do employment services, help with the resume, help with interview skills. We do linkage to housing, linkage to medical care, STI testing, and then the legal program. And that's my, my piece of it. <laughs> sure, sure. And so, I mean, your legal director, staff attorney, when we talked before, we had a really good uh, conversation before where you really dug deep in, into all this, but you wear a lot of hats, right? I mean, it's not, it sounds like it's a, you know, a whole staff of different attorneys and stuff, but you're, you're doing a lot of work there. Tell right. us about that. I'm, yeah. I'm the only attorney, but I also work with a paralegal who is phenomenal and the work would not be possible without, without them. So it's definitely a two person department. I'm just the only one with a JD. <laughs> okay, well, that's a lot of pressure. Why did you get into it? Tell you know what what made you you know go to go to school, graduate, and decide that this was the path that you wanted to take. So I went to law school to do LGBT issues. I'm a queer person, and I wanted to help my community. And I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do with that. Like I went in thinking maybe I would do family law adoption because it was before marriage equality. Yeah. Um, the laws just weren't in place for families and quickly decided I wanted to do more on the civil rights side of things. So I did an internship at a major LGBT nonprofit and got to work on a marriage case, which was really great, the marriage case in Iowa. But I noticed that like resources just weren't being allocated nationally in terms of the organizations doing the work to the T in LGBT. And, but in my social circle, that's where I was seeing the greatest need. My friends weren't able to get health care. They were getting beat up, thrown out of bars. Homophobia obviously still existed legally and want, you know, just in community. But the greatest need I was seeing on the ground, which is the people in my life, were rights for trans folks and, and on a much sort of basic needs level. So I went and did an internship in New York at a trans rights organization and thought like, okay, this is what I want to do. I also have a background in women's studies and gender studies. And so gender justice just generally is really important to me and, you know, supporting the voices of people of marginalized genders and being in service to the people who are the most impacted by misogyny, which is trans people, primarily transgender women, but all trans people are impacted by misogyny, definitely. And I left law school. I worked as a volunteer staff attorney at a trans rights org in Chicago for about five years. 
and did other work, worked at a firm for a while, did some kind of dry <laughs> things on my own and like, you know, my own little practice, worked retail and then did volunteer work for a few other orgs and ended up at Chicago House in 2017. I mean, it's a very condensed version. I'm sure there's a lot of things that happened in between there, but one thing that you did mention was the fact that you have a, a, it's a significant background in gender studies, right? You have a master's. I do. So uh, when you, when you were going into school, when you were, you know, choosing that, that path, why, why did that really stand out to you? I mean, that takes a long time and, you know, it's a lot of work. Right. I've just been, I've done my bachelor's in sociology and in women's studies. And I honestly, I just really liked the classes because <laughs> I was starting to learn history and authors. I mean, it was all of the things that I wasn't taught in high school right. or I wasn't getting in my other classes in college. And it wasn't just women, but it was also, it was interdisciplinary. So I was learning, you know, Asian history and black history and reading black writers and getting all of the things that are just cut out of traditional classes. And that's mm. the stuff that I was interested in. And I worked for a year after I graduated undergrad and thought, I really liked school. <laughs> I would like to go back. And I, so I wanted to go back for the, in the area that I was passionate about and that was interesting. Maybe not the most practical, although I, I definitely, the things I learned, I still apply in this job, but it was more just out of, out of interest. I didn't have a great plan. I thought maybe PhD and then, and I had always wanted to go to law school, but just had at some point, I think, internalized a lot of messaging about intelligence and women. And it was sort of a complicated situation, but I decided mm. I wasn't smart enough to go to law school. I also have chronic health issues and that played into it too. And I just thought, I, you know, that's, I'm not like good enough. I'm not smart enough to do that. And then it's getting ready to do PhD applications. And I just didn't, I just did not want to do it. Wow. <laughs> like everything in me was saying, this is not for you. You really just should go to law school. So I decided wow. to just swerve. Yeah. In the other well, it's interesting when I talk to a lot of people, it seems like, especially lawyers in particular, there's, there's always some sort of aha moment that they have where whether they're in some, some other field, you know, of practice, you know, maybe they're working for a, a, a corporation or something like that. And they're just like, Whoa, pump the brakes here we got to change something. And, you know, it sounds to me like that's, that's your case as well. Now, I mean, taking all that time going to school and graduating and, you know, all the things that you just laid out and bringing it all the way up to where you are now, how would you say that, 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 that background is able to help you in your current line of work, you know, in the type of practice that you're, you're in right now? Well, I think it taught me how to think of gender in a more expansive way for sure. And understand the ways that we've constructed ideas of gender in Western countries and just sort of a framework. And it also helped me learn how to write. I mean, legal writing is very different than liberal arts writing, but I still wrote a lot in grad school. So just practical skills as well. But knowing those frameworks, I had a strong emphasis on LGBT history when I was in my master's program. And so I was mm -hmm. able to really understand how things functioned and how they've gotten to where they are in the United States. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it, it's a, I mean, a, a really good background to have. I mean, if you're, if you're getting into this, I mean, I think there's a lot of, I guess, misunderstanding of the whole gender identity 
conversation as a whole. I mean, I, I am confused about certain things. I mean, it seems like it's a ever evolving type of, uh, topic and, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of keep up unless you're on the forefront and it sounds like you are, what are some of the things, I mean, I know I have a list of some of the things that you're, you're directly involved with as far as legislation goes. I want to talk about that, but what are some of the things that, um, you're seeing either get better or you're seeing your, your clients and the people that are at Chicago house encountering as far as maybe bigotry and, you know, things like that. Is that getting better or, or is there a lot more work to do? Cause it's, I mean, people are all over the place with that. What's your opinion? I think there is a lot more work to do. Anti-trans violence is an epidemic, particularly for black trans women right now. Mm -hmm. And, and we are limited on data because there just aren't studies that are affirming that feel safe to the community. Although a center just opened at Northwestern that's going, that's run by trans and non-binary people for mm. trans and non-binary people who will be doing some of these research studies. But the statistic in the United States is the average lifespan for a black trans woman in America is 35. Hmm. That's, that's wild. Yeah. And so there's an epidemic of overt violence. Black trans women are being killed at an alarming rate. And then it's also violence through state legislatures. And then in just the dialogue around some of the laws being passed in, in primarily Southern states, trying to limit healthcare for trans children, like gender affirming care, describing it as child abuse. And all of these conversations are being held by cisgender people people's lived experience does not get the same weight as someone's opinion <laughs> about what a child should or shouldn't receive in terms of health care. And I think that's the bigger, biggest problem. And, that, and, and then it feeds into everything else that's going on is that all of these conversations are being run and controlled by cisgender people when really it doesn't impact our lives at all. And, and we haven't, it hasn't broken away from that and, and giving so much weight and volume to those voices and not listening to people with lived experience and also excluding folks from leadership positions. And that I think I will say a positive change that I'm seeing is that there are more trans people representing their broader communities in state legislatures. So, you know, Virginia has elected twice now, Danica Rome, who's a delegate in the Virginia State House. There's a state senator now in Delaware who's trans. We're getting more trans judges. And that's how it should be. I mean, it should be, our government should represent who we are, but folks, folks either if they're out have been excluded or feel like they have to stay closeted in order to have access to participating in government. And do you think that there is maybe a bias just because there's a, it's a population amount, you know, percentage of the population. I mean, if you're looking at a representative government, for the most part, you 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 generally, I would say that there's generally more um, cisgendered people than any any other group, right? So is does that play into it? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I think it's just, we haven't, those spaces just haven't been accessible to folks. I, I think that, yeah, I mean, when, if, yeah. I'm sure there's people in Congress right now that are homosexual that don't, that haven't come out, right? So like, who knows? But it, it, I think it may be a fear, a stigma type of thing. 
do you think that maybe there's there's more of that than we realize and it's more of just a private issue where people just don't want to talk about it because they feel like maybe it's nobody else's business yeah i, I think i think at least in america and I, and also in the uk there's a significant problem with transphobia in the uk as well sure but i think we have really drilled into people's heads to because and I hear this from my clients all the time and clients who come in who've had just egregious things done to them and they usually lead with I don't know if this is a big deal huh. and yeah, a lot right, of right. around sharing what's happened to them because they feel like they're you know quote-unquote complaining or yeah. causing a problem or asking for things that they don't deserve and and so we've really we've really done a good job of teaching people to to not speak up and to you know, have a quote unquote thick skin or respect people's, we describe everything as an opinion and we just haven't, we haven't made space for folks. And, and we don't really, people are, I think cis people are so afraid of drive, like drawing hard lines. And I think we just need to get better about speaking up and being okay with there being an okay way to treat people and a not okay way to treat people. I mean, some of the questions that were asked of Dr. Rachel Levine when she was doing her confirmation hearing in the Senate, she's the deputy. Yeah, right. I was going to bring right. it up. Yeah. Right. She's, I mean, she's a brilliant physician. She's a, you know, epidemiologist. Like she's who you need in a pandemic. And <laughs> she really led her state. And yet some of the questions were deeply uninformed and were about her being trans. And it's like, no, she's here because she is a doctor. <laughs> and that is, and, and her lived experience does contribute in her ability to make sure that gender affirming care is being given in the right way and that people have access to it. But, and people sort of act, acted like that line of questioning was just maybe a little offensive or, you know, I don't know. I just think we need to get better at just saying, this is not okay. This is not, this isn't a debate. People's lives are not a debate. And we cis people need to be, because you, because we, there are more of us population wise, and we need to be better about being really loud in saying, it's not your opinion. It's not a debate. We just, these are people's lives yeah. and, and it's, it's really important. Yeah. I find a lot of times, especially in government or even in any type of issue that's, that's based on a class of people, it's, you're, you're talking about a group as if it's just numbers on a spreadsheet or, you know, something in a, in an encyclopedia, you know, where it's like you're to study, you know, you, you, it's a dehumanizing type of thing. I feel a lot of times when we get into these topics and issues, and that's unfortunate. I, I wonder what is it that a society that has a history as we do, you know, I mean, our, our society is based off of, you know, just the common law society, you know, from, from England and that's spread around the Western world and in different places that people have different ways they live their life. I think it, I, I, there's a lot of examples. What are your thoughts? It's complicated. I have no idea. I don't expect you to come up with the solution, but no, <laughs> I'm curious. I think it would be helpful if if cisgender people would understand that they also have a gender and also have pronouns that they use because I hear a lot in conversation particularly like with employers about pronoun usage and feeling like it's okay for one of their employees to not use the proper pronouns for another employee as if only trans and non-binary people have pronouns that they use <laughs> except we all we all do yeah that's uh, kind of a newer thing though I don't ever remember anybody ever 
stating their pro I mean, it's something that you see in email signatures or on social media profiles nowadays. I mean, it's all over the place and I have no real opinion on it, but it's a very new phenomenon. And I think that there's a lot of pushback as far as that goes, just because it's confusing and it's new. Why is that? Why, what, I mean, what is, where did that come from? I don't know. I mean, I truly, some of this stuff, and I'm not saying I'm, we were all socialized to be, to focus on cisgender as the standard and everything else is different. And so I am certainly not, you know, perfect on it all points, but right. I don't understand the pushback on that pronoun usage because I use she, her pronouns and I am attached to those pronouns and I would like them to be, I mean, I'm not upset if someone uses they, them pronouns for me, you, you either are fine, but I think, I just don't understand why people are so resistant to it. I think what would be helpful, and I'm happy to see them in email signatures, is in meetings. Something I encourage employers to do is to start using that in introductions. And sometimes they'll say, well, we don't have any trans people who work here. It's like, well, one, you don't have any out trans people who work here. You don't know who's struggling, wanting to come out and wanting to start transitioning, but feels like they don't also don't want to be out of a job. Yeah. But like, so? We all have pronouns. Like, why why isn't it okay to do that as part of intros or check-ins or just make it just make it part of life? And I don't understand the pushback on that. Yeah, I I try to look at all the different sides of it. And you know, obviously we all kind of grow up a certain way. And uh, we talked about this when we had our, you know, conversation before. You know, I mean, there's since it is a new phenomenon as far as you know, stating your pronouns and then also the, the fact that there are different pronouns that don't necessarily play in line with the, the way that we grew up. I mean, the language, you know, the education that we had as far as English and proper, you know, vocabulary and, you know, all that, it's just, we, that was never even considered or brought up in any way when we were in school. So I can see why people are like, well, Hey, what's this? What, you know, I'm not gonna, this is something new, whatever. It's a fad or something like that. I'm sure you hear that too, because the, the, there's a lot of opinions that people have, which is okay. I, I feel like there's two sides of this. There's, there's the people that are saying, you know, you have to do it this way. And then there's people that are pushing back at, on it and saying, no, well, this is the right way to do it. So who's right? Is there really anybody that comes out being the person with the correct opinion? Does it, I mean, who, who decides what the correct opinion is? I think, I think the person who's living the life I'm, and I've dealt with employers in these conversations too, of them feeling like there's two sides to people's pronouns and there isn't. And we, in our workplaces, we are told to speak professionally. You're generally not allowed to use a lot of profanity, depending on your job. I'm guilty of that. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I, I <laughs> need a on my desk. But there's there's ways we speak, and then we're, there's ways we treat other people. I mean, I worked yeah. customer service for a long time, and I definitely wasn't allowed to just tell difficult customers how I was feeling about <laughs> the moment, right? Right. So... You're allowed to, in Illinois, you are legally required <laughs> to make sure people's pronouns are used yeah. properly. But the person who's saying, this is my name, these are the pronouns I use, that's the person who's right. And the person who's like, you know what, I actually get to pick your name for you and your pronouns because I, I get to choose who you are. That person is wrong. 
Like there isn't, she was, I mean, cause yeah. it's just, when you think about it, it is wild to say to another person, no, no, I know who you are better than you do. And I get to pick how I refer to you and you have to follow what I say about you. Yeah. So strange. It's so well, yeah. strange. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. I, I, it's, I see what you're saying. And I think in the polite society that we live in, right generally it's a polite society in the working, you know, if you're in an office or something, it's like, sure. Okay. If, if somebody says, if somebody comes up to you and they're not trying to fight you, you know, and they're saying, you know, just, Hey, this is who I am. This is my name or these are my pronouns. Like you gotta, it's, it's, it doesn't make any sense for somebody to go out of their way to offend somebody. Right. So that makes sense to me. And I feel like that is, that's just being a decent person, right? Just like, if you say that your name is Elizabeth and I'm going to call you Tom, why am I doing that? That doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But, but the other end of it is, and you, you, you see this, and this is kind of the argument. I think a lot of times where people are feel, I guess in, in our society, we're, we're oppositional. If somebody tells us this is how you do that, we automatically will go and say, well, hey, screw you. I'll do it my way. I'm an American. You know, I'm, I'm, I have freedom. I can do it. It's a free country, right? I mean, that's, so that's the idea that, that people want to go to that place. You know, if somebody gets in your face and tells you how to conduct your own life, there's the opposite side of this argument, you know, where it's like, well, who are you to tell me what I can do? And, and what I can say and how I should address anybody, because there always are people that are going to be, you know, kind of just scummy people. I mean, it's going to happen and there's no way around that. So, I mean, is it almost a, is it almost a, I guess, is there a way that you could ever accomplish what you're setting out to accomplish and changing nature of people that don't want to be changed? I like to think so, but also you know, at least in Illinois, we have a very robust human rights act. Right. And if someone feels so deeply about their need to use the wrong name or the wrong pronoun for someone, then they might not have a job anymore. I mean, right. there's consequences to those choices. They can make their individualist choice to do that, but then they might get fired. Or if they're right. allowing employees to do that, then they might have to pay a large settlement or change the way they're running their business. So, you know, there are there should be and are consequences. Right. Unfortunately, though, for people like my clients, there's a lot of time in between either being fired for being trans or having to leave a job because it's not safe. Right. And any kind of hopeful resolution. And in that time, they have to tell their story over and over again. They have to be interrogated about it by the other side's attorney, by mm -hmm. investigators from the Department of Human Rights. They have to look while they're looking for a new job. Yeah. And, and that's something I think I hear a lot in just conversation about discrimination cases in general is that it's somehow uh, this like very easy windfall of money or, you know, yeah, right. it's not just, to be, just to be ornery. And it is, it is exhausting, traumatizing. It is work for the person because they have yeah. to keep telling their story and they right. have to 
go th- really go through the ringer and it's like re- re-traumatizing fun. themselves over and over. I mean, uh, generally, yeah. if there's something that gets to that level, it, it obviously has to be pretty traumatizing. So it's, I can't imagine, you know, it's like you said, I mean, we have our lived experience. So something like that, if I was in a workplace and it was, you know, I guess abrasive environment or something like that, you know, people were bullying or just being terrible people in the workplace. I feel like if I was, if I had nobody else like me, nobody with my shared experience to have my back, that would just be unmanageable. What, where do you turn when there's nobody to turn to? I think our society is being, you know, a straight, you know, man, it's like, I can look next door and see somebody that would back me up if somebody came to break into my house, you know, for instance, or, you know, if somebody uh, said something to me in passing in a hallway, you know, it would, I would have backup. I would have recourse right away. Like, Hey, who's this person? Let's go, you know, whatever. So it's like, it's, that's wild. And, and I can see why there's a giant need for organizations and people in your line of work, you know, that are, that are advocating for this, because although we look at this as a, a very small community of people, I guess, in our just society, the, the, the amount of pain is unimaginable to people like, like us. So yeah, I, I, you know, people talk about this on a, on a, you know, very superficial level. A lot of times, you know, you just, you see it as a news story, something that's outrageous or, you know, some argument that people got in, you'll see a a viral video of somebody and you see this and there's, there's factions and you get polarized and you're either on this team or that team. And it's totally not about the actual victim or the person that's hurting anymore at all. How do we get away from that? How do we, how do we turn away from the politics of the whole situation. And instead of calling names and pointing fingers, trying to figure out a solution that would actually work for everybody. How do we accomplish that? I mean, not to be contrarian, but I think we have to get away from the idea of, of finding a solution that works for people who are being discriminatory or violent. I mean, I do think I don't think carceral systems of punishment and like banishing people necessarily is effective, but I think we need to teach people how to be accountable and engage people who've been harmed in, in that process and say like, what feels right to you? Cause I, you know, I get calls from people who've experienced violence and mm-hmm. one of the first things they'll ask is if, if they're not familiar with the criminal legal system, they'll ask if I can prosecute a crime. They want a private prosecutor. Hmm. And of course it's not how it works. But once the state gets a case, it's not, it's not your case. It's the people's case. And you're a witness in the hmm. case being brought by the people of the state of Illinois. Right. And it doesn't usually make people feel whole or restored. And so we need to, I think, look at different systems of justice so that we can teach people how how to react when they have harmed people because I think there's a lot of defensiveness about well and it's again something I hear in my cases a lot from people who've who've engaged in discrimination is I'm not that kind of person well (laughs) except that you did x y and z and so maybe your self-perception is not actually accurate but if we can engage in like you did cause this person harm 
and working on how to how to address the harm and be accountable and move forward and make changes with those individuals. I think that is helpful, but I don't think we need to give them a, a solution other than, you know, I always think about Kim Davis, who is that clerk after marriage equality passed, who didn't want to issue marriage licenses mm, um, right, right. to people in Kentucky. And it's like, well, the solution for that is if you don't want to engage with gay people, you shouldn't have a public facing job. Right. You can do yeah. jobs that are protected under, you can work for a church. You can do, you know, do other things, but you don't get to have a public facing job if you don't want to work. Like that is the solution. We don't, I don't think we need to accommodate everyone's bigotry, but I do think accountability and restorative justice models are more helpful than, than like carceral systems and just like replicating punishment that then yeah, it's not going to get us anywhere. No, because people just get more defensive. Exactly. Yeah. And it doesn't help the person who's been hurt. Well, you're, what you're going to do is you're going to get people victimizing people more because they're pushing back. And that that's just human nature. You know, I mean, when you, when you have somebody like, like I was saying, I mean, when we're oppositional, just in nature, as far as that goes, I mean, it's just like the free will aspect of it is is very, you know, like it's just built in. So well, I guess, I, you know, I understand what you're, you're saying. Like it, it's, you don't want to accommodate some, accommodate somebody's, you know, bigotry or, or bad actions, but maybe if we were to give some sort of, not accommodation for bigotry, but some sort of way to lighten that amount of direct hey this is you're a bad person you know because there's no once you go there once you say oh you're a bit you're a bigot you're a racist you're a big you know once you do that the conversation's over there's no now you're just working oppositionally and it's it's now you've chosen a side and unfortunately for this type of marginalized class there just aren't as many people to back up the side and that side will generally lose right and that's when you get this the vicious cycle of people victimizing and blaming it. That's what I see. I see it in, in the media. I see it, you know, on the, in the comments, when you see a post about something that, you know, oh, social yeah. media, comments, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, social media just exacerbates this whole thing. I mean, there's positive parts of it because it enlightens people to things that they've, that would, they would never come into contact with. For instance, that the example that I gave you when we talked, I mean, if you grow up in a small town, that's not near a city, you may never encounter somebody that's transgender ever, or at least that's out and visibly trans, you know, or I guess where, where you know it, I mean, it's, a, it, so how would you even, it's like a, it's like a foreign thing. It's a foreign topic. And you, you know, you, that that's so difficult to, to ch change people's perception of people when it's just so foreign to them that it's like unapproachable. It's not even something that you can, how do you get, how do you break through that? I mean, isn't that some, is that something that you encountered? I mean, how do you have these conversations with people that just don't know and they're just ignorant to it? Totally. Um, I mean, I think it depends on where they're at with it. I can tell you I there's children. I don't have children, but there are children in my life who are important to me. And when I talk to them, if they want, you know, want to understand what I do in my office or just gender in general, wow. and they're kind of blank slates, none of this is hard for them to get understand. 
and and usually in the cases with like trans kids in schools, it's not the it's not the classmates that are the issue. It's the parents. So I think it's a matter of kind of undoing learning <laughs> that adults have because kids. It makes total sense. My my goddaughter, when she was seven, we had a conversation. She wanted to know what I what I do. She's like, I know you're a lawyer. What kind of what do you do every day? And so we were we talked about it, and she said, okay, so some girls, some people with girl brains have some kind one kind of part, and other people with girl brains have a different kind of part, which is like a very essentializing. But she's seven, and I said, yeah, that's that's it. And she said, okay, well that makes sense. Why are people mad about it? Yeah. <laughs> like, I it's time for bed. Like, I just, I mean, how much? <laughs> it, yeah. You know, I need, I need some wine. The civil rights <laughs> movement, and she sort of underst understood that people sometimes are very self invested. She's very bright, but if a seven year old can get it, and it's just like a non, it just it's a non issue, it makes all the sense in the world. I think adults can too. We just have to. I think we, again, with accountability, we also have to hold adults accountable for the fact that they're under, they're able to adapt to all, think about all the technological adaptations we've had in just the last 20 years, right? right? We're able, we are capable of learning so many new things and changing how we live in significant ways. I never thought I'd have a computer in my pocket. Mm, right. I mean, I like barely had dial up when I went to college but we've been able to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So I think we also just need to trust in people that, and, and not, and not give people passes. Like there, we're all able to learn new things and learn how to interact with new kinds of folks all the time. I think also, I mean, and this is a long-term goal, like generations kind of goal, but if we stop thinking about gender as just this binary thing attached to external genitalia, I think that would do everybody a world of good because you know I, when we talked I said and I say this I feel like I say it a lot is that my sense of who I am is not attached to secondary sex characteristics it's not attached to I think I would be the same person if I had been assigned male at birth as I am now like my womanhood is not attached to body parts because I felt feminine before I understood any of that I think mm -hmm. a lot of us as children know who we are. And, and I think if we all started thinking about ourselves, everybody having a gender and it, and that's just, that is just like a person that is who you are, that is intrinsic to your sense of who you are. Right. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to match up, you know, with external parts or internal parts. And if we just kind of were able to break, and I know it's like, really idealistic but yes. I think it's good to imagine possibilities because if you can't can't imagine it it'll never happen so I think if we can just get away from some of that and I think it'll be really freeing I, I know a lot of cisgender men who struggle with feeling a lot of things that don't align with what they think is male or masculine and they're like, I know who I am, but then people keep telling me I can't be this or I can't be that. And who are these people though? I see this is the thing. Like in, in my okay, for for instance, my 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 experience, I worked in an office, I did sales, I did like, you know, work with a bunch of guys, you know, young guys, right? And so it's like I don't know exactly 
who these people are that are pointing the finger and saying you can't be this or whatever i mean i know that it's it's nature to kind of pick on people that are maybe don't fit in i mean it's just it's how that works like it's i guess there's a culture behind that and it's 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 if you ever play sports or anything like that i'm not a sports person by the way but if you if you ever get into a, a locker room type of thing that's the conversation right the locker room talk that's how people will play it off a lot of times they'll say well you know it, it's just that's what guys do right and so that's what people say and so i guess actually this brought and now i'm all over the place but i had one guy that he ended up coming out after uh, i had left the office which was great but we all knew already we already we already knew he just do you encounter that too do you encounter that where people are already out as far as all the people around them and already accepting or not, but everybody's kind of made up their mind. Is I mean, that... I would say I see that more like with sexual orientation. That's definitely, <laughs> there's, I think we've all had that one friend who we think might be bi or gay or lesbian and they just, for whatever reason, don't want to say it or it's not, or it's not true. I mean, I can think of several men that I've dated who are cisgender who identify as straight people have always assumed or not and are just yeah. waiting for them to come out I mean we do I will say as a bisexual person we also do that to bisexual people all the time is that like you're just you're just waiting right. <laughs> like you just haven't come out yet <laughs> and it's like no I came out already I'm not I've just this is just how I got made this is the model that I was yeah. put into when I was born and that's fine. And I think we do it more to bisexual men than to women. Like, yeah. oh, he's just gay. And it's like, right. you know, he already told you who he is. He's bisexual or queer or pansexual. He's yeah. not looking to come out as anything else. It's a lot, it's <laughs> a lot more uh, acceptable, I guess, if, if you think about bisexuality for, for a female. I mean, that's kind of just like, it's almost like encouraged in some cases right i mean in our Very culture pedicized. if yes. it's, it's the right kind of woman right which is usually like right. white with long hair and under 35 and femme and if it's done visually for a man right exactly there's definitely rules for it be, to be acceptable and we just like i think i do think it's changing i think there's been a lot of male celebrities who've come out as bisexual which i think are queer which i think is helpful i mean i don't think we should all be at the altar of celebrity all the time, but because right. um, I, I mean, I've dated plenty of people that are cis men who are bisexual and not out to very many people because they, every time they've come out to someone, they get told, oh, well, you're just gay. Yeah. So just don't tell people because they are tired of being told things that aren't true about themselves. Yeah. Well, it, I have experience with that too, actually. I had a, I don't even know, just a friend, I guess, at, at some point and I had no idea that he was bisexual, right? And so it was like a long um, time, you know, where, where you had no idea and you're talking and, you know, people when you're young, especially like when you're in your late teens and early twenties, you joke around about things, right? You, you say things that, that when you look back, you, you could be like, whoa, that that's kind of messed up, right? That that person was there experiencing that and never said anything, right? Like maybe that was hurtful. How, how you know, how does that feel? And I, I 
I think that people don't think about that until that realization, you know, kind of comes up in life with your experience. If it's not something that's close to you that you can reflect on, then it really doesn't matter. It's just somebody else's problem. Right. So how, how, you know, I don't really see how as a society, when you know that there's a majority of people that think a certain way, and I, like you said, it is a generational type of thing. I mean, as far as society goes, but I, I don't really see how you can root that out all the way, just because it's a nature kind of thing built in. Am I misguided on that? I mean, do you think that you have more experience in that field. Obviously you have your own biases too. We right. all do, but what do you, what do you, what, what say you? I, I just try to be hopeful because if you can't, if you are not hopeful, it gets real dark. I mean, and these have been dark. This has been a dark couple of months with all of these bills in state houses getting passed. I mean, it, the Trump mm -hmm. years were hard. But this has also been, and it's, I mean, and I'm, I'm a step removed, right? I'm not a trans child. I'm not a trans athlete. I'm not a trans person having to listen to people debate my existence right. over and over. But you have to find the hope because the work won't get done if you don't yeah. have some of that. So I am just, I guess I just try to stay hopeful that, and I've seen the members of my own family, even in their later years, completely shift their opinions and their, and, and to say like, I was wrong. I, I thought about things in a really wrong way and that was not okay. And I, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I think, so I, it's, it's possible for people to change. I mean, I wish, I wish people, even if they didn't know anyone of an impacted group could just care about them because they're other humans. And that would be pretty great if we can get to that point but I think I think there's a lot of work to be un, like a lot of conditioning to be undone but I've seen also seen a lot of change I mean I've only been like an adult for 20 years but I think in the last 20 years I've seen we've all seen some really positive yeah. steps forward and I I think and that is to the credit of people who've done just like backbreaking work on the ground. And so I think, I think more people can start to shift and grow and change, especially if we create space for people to grow and shift and change, which isn't, again, isn't to say people shouldn't be accountable for their actions, but that's I do great. Think yeah. I do think I, it's possible. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard because I think, especially for a generation that's in a transitional phase itself, as far as coming from, you know, total just hate crimes, all the, you know, like where it's unacceptable to it's acceptable. And then that the whole generation, maybe a couple of them, maybe three of them, you know, <laughs> different, different age groups, I guess, young people, it's, it's a total transitional period right now. So people that, like you just said, thought a totally different way. And you look back and you're like, oh my God, what, what did I do? You know, what was I thinking? Right. I think that's part of growing up too, by the way. Right. I mean, everybody makes stupid choices when they're young and then looks back and says, I can't believe I did that. Right. I mean, even just wearing something. So it's like, how can you, when you know the internet is forever, look back and then I guess 
hold people accountable for those actions when that person you're looking at is not, doesn't exist anymore. That person has changed. I don't know if there's enough room for that to happen. I think that now people want to root past actions out and, and look into your history and punish you for things when you were operating in a different society with different norms and different, you know, customs and just how do we work on that? Is that something that people are thinking about in your space as far as being open? I, I would imagine that you would want people to feel comfortable changing and not feeling ashamed or, or scared being around people because they might get called out or canceled or something like that for something they did 20 years ago. How do yeah, we work that out? That doesn't really come up in the spaces that I'm in because I think no? we're just, we have other things to worry about than Twitter. <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, not like I get it, but I also think, I don't, I think that consequences are okay. Like if somebody said something, and I think it also is, is very, varies from situation to situation to situation. Sometimes there's, there's maybe lose an endorsement deal or, you know, whatever. But if you're also, if you're truly doing the work and you really believe in the change that you've made in yourself and you really want to be accountable, then you should get it. And you should be like, yeah, that was, that was not a great move on my part. And I probably should lose this endorsement deal because people should be held accountable and moving forward. It's not like you should, you know, I mean, I guess it depends on the person, but I think, I think that there, there is space for that. And if someone's really done the work and has really changed, they'll, I think they would understand where it's coming from, but it doesn't really, that's like not my, especially with my clients, like they're just trying to find a place, like they're just trying to stay alive. Yeah, no, um, I get that. I get and that. And in, in yeah. activist spaces, I don't know. I just haven't heard it come up very much. <laughs> like, well, I've heard it come up. I, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I guess we're, we're, we are in different circles, just yeah. with our live, lived experience. And I talked to a lot of different people just on this podcast that I normally never would in, in normal life. Right. And, you know, I, I do marketing for a living. So I talk to business owners a lot. I talk to, you know, community people, but I try to stay away from activism stuff because it's not good for marketing, right? So, but as far as, as far as what you're saying though, as far as holding people accountable and understanding, I think that's good, but there's also a dark side to that because the pendulum swings both ways. What if we come into a place where somebody like Trump or somebody way worse than Trump comes into office and makes it illegal and it's a death sentence like in Saudi Arabia or something. And then now... You're sitting there saying, well, you know, I have to, you know, I, I should know because this is the right way now that things have changed because there's a real possibility that that could happen. It's happened in society before. How do we, you know, I mean, there's always two sides of this and there's very scary sides to that particular thing. For, I think there's a difference between codifying a criminal law and saying, we don't want you to advertise our soda, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, because that's a private company choice. It's not government. Right. Um, and the government first amendment has, there's a lot of latitude with the first amendment and people use the first amendment in ways that 
it's just not it's very rarely is it ever actually accurately referenced to i think especially on social media like twitter's not the government right ban you they're a private company they're not telling you they're not your government telling you you can't speak or compelling you to speak they can do whatever they want which like i get it which stinks sometimes because sometimes people get locked out of their the algorithms are not perfect. They're far from perfect. So oh, yeah. I think there's just a really big difference between like banning freedom of press or changing the constitution and, and speech protections. But, but along with speech protections, like you say something, people might react to it. Well, definitely people react to, to things that, that go outside of their, their, you know, perceived worldview. I mean, their worldview is like, you know, hey, this is the way things need to be, and that's the perception of it. It's like, if that's if that's not the right way to do it, then you're an enemy. You're you're a terrorist, or you're a you know a bigot, or something like that. And and it's it's scary sometimes how polarizing these topics can get. I think that, like we're talking about when we bring politics into this type of stuff, it takes away the human component of the victimization that happens to the people. I mean, there there's there's people that are actually hurting. Like you say, I mean, I didn't hear that statistic. I mean, you said the average age was 35 for uh, black trans women in America. Mm -hmm. What's the general, if it, it like, is, is that way out of line with say white or Hispanic uh, or is, what are the stats on that? I don't know what the stats are for, for white women. I, so I've heard that stat described because people tend to just sometimes just lump the black experience and with everybody else and just use the phrase people of color so i've heard it used for that and then also black trans women so latina women might be included in that but it is certainly not the the normal age average age for women in america and i, I think there's been more coverage and we also just we don't know how many trans people get murdered because a lot of or, or killed or die by suicide because a lot of times they their family doesn't support who they are and so right. it doesn't get collected as a death of a trans person and that's not how how that person is remembered yeah but it is just i i, I mean my friends turn 36 37 40 50 that shouldn't feel like i just survived right. yeah right. <laughs> um, Definitely. I mean, people should be able to to thrive and have full robust lives it shouldn't just be i just don't want to get killed is um, it is it is it more violence or is it suicide what is the higher number violence violence mm -hmm. but i would say death by suicide I think we talk about suicide in a way that's so emphasized on like mental illness and we don't look at external factors like poverty and that's not limited to gender, right? Poverty yeah. but and living in a country where your very existence is debated constantly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And all of these like systemic factors go into it. So I would say that state violence, I mean, it's still violence if you were constantly having to defend your right to exist every day it wears you down i have a um, question about that is there an example of another country that is 
is better for trans rights? Is there is there an example anywhere in the world that's better than here that's doing it right that we can look to for any guidance? You know, I don't know off the top of my head. I used to know that because I wrote, maybe we'll cut this part out because it sounds right. I did write a paper for the UN on how bad we are compared to other countries. I'm <laughs> in the top five. We were, especially for police brutality against trans women. We're the top five? For we we're in the top five. I mean, that was in 2014, but I don't imagine it's changed that much for just for police violence against trans people. But I mean, overall, though, I mean, like, like you were saying, I mean, there's a lot of governments where you right. just, you just get put to death, you know, I mean, it's. And then I would imagine this is just speculation. Nordic countries probably, I mean, Nordic countries, their laws on sex work are not great, but overall tend to be a little more free for folks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I think of like something like, I mean, the old one was always Amsterdam. Oh, everything's free there. Right. So you would right. think, I mean, like sex work is, uh, is okay. And so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I, I wonder, there's so many statistics that you can throw in every direction, right? So it's like, oh, how do you, how do you know what is the accurate number? How do you know? I mean, cause like you hear, I mean, like in Africa and, and in, you know, the Middle East, I mean, like we're talking about you're getting put to death. <laughs> there's no question. It goes against religion. You're done. And that is obviously state those are state actors that do that. I mean, that's their government. So I, do you really, I mean, I don't have, I, I don't know if I've heard of a, a, a police brutality. Is it police brutality? Like in, in custody? Is that, is that what you're talking about or? From start to finish from, I mean, arrest to arraignment to holding cells. Yeah. And then you get outside of that and you get into pretrial detention and, and then imprisonment which aren't police, it's corrections officers. But yes, right. there's a lot of brutality and arrests and in profiling. Yeah. But when I was working on that study, there was a lot of issues of there being pretty significant time gaps between the arrest and arrival at the station mm. because police officers were taking detours and sexually assaulting trans women. Wow. And, but I mean, I hear it from my clients all the time about getting hassled by police. I years ago worked with someone who a police officer threw out all of her, her, all of her identity documents because he's like this can't be real and then wrote a bunch of slurs in the police report refusing to to respect people's genders doing very invasive searches all, all searches the horribles and... you can imagine a lot of a lot of hands where they don't necessarily need to put their hands yeah mm. you know laughing at people just if you can imagine it it's happening yeah <laughs> and it, yeah and it's particularly with profiling all trans women as being sex engaged in sex work, which I will say I'm a full, very vocal advocate of sex work decriminalization and, and sex workers' rights. But there's a lot of profiling. New York just got rid of their, they had some loitering laws that were disproportionately impacting trans women just on the street. I mean, we have a problem in Chicago in our gay neighborhood with white gay men calling the police because a black woman's on the out existing outside yeah oh yeah outside yeah the I, 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 yeah i used to live like right there you know down there and, and have many friends like that but you know there there's a culture thing of of racism in that big time i mean cool. definitely big time yeah. in that community specifically yeah. yeah so i mean it's it's you always think like 
you know, if you're LGBT, uh, well, you can't be racist. You can't be, you know, you mm -hmm. always like, you, you yeah. conflate these things together and it's like, no, that's not true. Everybody kind of has their opinions. People are people, right? I mean, just because this one thing applies to you doesn't make it, you know, <laughs> exclude you from all these other things. But it's funny that you bring that up because that's a very true thing. And I've seen that. I don't know. I, you know, we've already done an hour, by the way. Yeah. And it's right. like, I, <laughs> I, I could talk about this all the time because it's so interesting. And it's like, you don't really get an opportunity to have a real in-depth conversation with somebody that's like really in it. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that we have going for us in Illinois, just because it is, you know, a blue state and there's a lot more, you know, liberal kind of policies, especially in the Chicagoland area, you know, that's the driving factor of the state pretty much. You're working on a few of these things. Before yeah. we go, you know, I, I ate up a bunch of the time talking about things and just okay. idealizing, but no, I, I love it though. I, I love it all. It's great. And it's, it's eye opening for a lot of these things. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these things? There's one though. So I'm going to list them off. Okay. You sent me a few things. So you said HB 2542, which is changing the Illinois name change law to expand access and streamline procedure. Can you give us a, a short rundown on what that is and, and how that's coming along? Yes, that is a, a long time coming. So we have the second most restrictive name change law in the country in Illinois. Mm. If you have a felony conviction, you can't change your name until 10 years past your last day of your last sentence. If you have an identity theft conviction, you can never change your name in Illinois. If you are on registry, you can't change your name during your registration period. And then there's some lifetime bans attached to some offenses that might put you on the registry. And the way we know that discrimination connects poverty, connects criminal legal system. So trans people are disproportionately to, you know, percentages of population tend to disproportionately be people with felony convictions. And then you, they can't change their name. So then that hinders housing and employment and access to healthcare. And it becomes this like cycle of right. staying in the criminal legal system because there's no resources. And we're just outliers from every, there's one, I, and I don't remember which state it is. There's only two states in the United States, Illinois and sorry, other state, I'm not remembering your, which <laughs> one, but with anything even in their name change law about identity theft, 20, only 20 states have anything at all involving registries in their laws and name changes because everything is electronic and you're surveilled. And if you're going in front of a court asking to them to change your name and here's all of my paperwork, you're not exactly evading anything, right? Yeah. Like you're on the record and most states acknowledge that. And so we would like to get in line with other states. I mean, when you have a more like conservative law than Texas, you're in a little bit of trouble. So we're hoping to remove the 10 year waiting period, remove the identity theft ban, and then for the registries, give people at least a chance to be in front of a judge. And a judge can decide if they can change their name. The state's attorney's office can object. It can be a whole conversation at the bench. But right now, even just asking for a name change if you're on a registry is another felony. Even just really? filing paperwork, which, you know, people don't usually read through, <laughs> like no. people don't usually read through those laws. And so it's kind of, it's, it's kind of a gotcha law, right? Um, yeah, that's, that seems a little out of whack. And definitely. there's people who end up on sex offender registries for public urination, for Romeo and Juliet laws, like right. you know, you're 19 and your partner's 17. Right. Um, 
for doing things, you know, people who've been trafficked doing things that they were compelled to do by their trafficker. There's, mm. you just never really know what someone's circumstances. Yeah. One size fit, fits all policy is never a good thing. You know? No, judicial and judicial discretion certainly if you get a bad judge can be a problem too, but at least people have. So we, we created carve out categories, people who want to change their name because of marriage. So maybe they're hyphenating their last name or, you know, their spouse and them are both changing their last name. Because right now, if you are in a registry and you get married and you take your spouse's last name, that's fine. Because hmm. you can just, you just show the marriage certificate to get new ID docs if you get married, if you're taking the other person's last name. There's no court process. So marriage, <laughs> um, religious reasons, survivors of human trafficking and gender identity. And you can, you'll be able to indicate that and then get in front of a judge and the judge can decide. And then there's some kind of boring procedural stuff that I don't want to, yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody cares about the, what's on the form. Yeah, um, how the paperwork works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and we're cautiously optimistic. It's really important. And it, it does affect trans people significantly, but obviously it, it affects anyone who wants to change. Right. Their name. But yeah, those are, this is just the law for people wanting to change their name in Illinois. Right. Right. Which seems crazy that, that if every other state pretty much is doing that, I mean, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you fall in the line as far as, you know, the rights other people have in other places, but no, I love it. And that's, that's, that passed the house you said, and it's, it's uh, on its way. Yes. It's uh, sponsored by Kelly Cassidy and she has been a tremendous leader on that bill. Really her leadership has been huge in getting that bill through and it's in the Senate and we're opt cautiously optimistic. People support it. You can call your Senator, <laughs> ask them to support HB 2542. And I don't anticipate an issue getting it signed into law by the governor if we can get it through the Senate. So I'm hoping to do a lot more. I have a very long spreadsheet of people who haven't been able to change their name who call and then I have to tell them no. So I'm hoping in the fall to be able to make some happy phone calls. Your paralegal is going to love you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they, they do actually handle most of the name changes, but they, they're excited for this too. We're all ready. I've been doing name changes in Illinois for 11 years. And telling people no is it never gets better. So I'm yeah. really excited for people to be able to have ID docs that match who they are. That's yeah, it seems uh, like a no-brainer. And so you know, I know we're we're taking time. If you got to go, let me know. But I wanted to cover this stuff. Let's skip ahead because there's one decriminalizing HIV transmission. This yeah. is something that is a hot button thing. You hear about what happened in California. There was a case like this and there's a lot of pushback like, whoa, why would you do that? What is that? You know, can you explain this? Because I feel like that's, that's something that's probably worded deceptively, you know, when it's put out on the news and put out in stories. Can you right. lay that out to us? Yeah. And I should say the bill number has changed. So now it's okay. HB 1063. I think when I sent it to you, it was a Senate bill. It's now a house bill that passed the house 99, no debate. And then it's now in the Senate. So HIV is the only disease that like communicable disease that we criminalize the transmission of. When you, we don't have a law saying, you know, if you have tuberculosis or, you know, even another STI and you pass that to somebody, you can go to prison. It's only HIV. And there are, of course, people think of the worst, worst case scenario, which is someone doesn't disclose their status, they lie and they quote unquote intentionally pass HIV to someone else. Yeah. And there that was a is case what, like that. 
there was a remember the case where the i can't remember exactly the details of it but basically the gist of it was there was a guy that knew he was hiv positive and specifically intentionally went to infect people with hiv which is a pretty heinous thing to do and it was like with malice like he was doing this purposely which people are crazy there's crazy people out there would this affect that well he that kind of that person if that's accurately what they were doing could not be charged if they were in, if we get this through and they were in illinois couldn't be charged with that but there's still plenty of other criminal laws on the books i'm not encouraging prosecutors to use any of them but i mean there's still attempted manslaughter there's still other tools people have right. but this like this discourages people from disclosing their status or even finding out their status. We don't want people to not get tested. It's it's a pu huge public health concern. And, you know, there are some policy ideas of, well, maybe we narrow it and prove intent. How do you prove intent? How do you prove someone didn't disclose? Unless yeah. everyone's, and we know people aren't going to be getting out their phones or having people sign contracts. And we- right. You know, and we've seen in domestic violence situations where an abuser will be mad that someone left. And so then they go to the police and say, well, that person is positive and they didn't disclose. And transmission in Illinois, you don't even, it doesn't even have to, the person doesn't have to get HIV. It's just, they could have gotten it. And it's used as a weapon against people or just, you know, jilted lovers who get rejected and they don't like that that happened. But, and it's also used to manipulate people. Well, I'll, I'll say you did this or I'll, you know, out your status. Mm. And it's, it's just, it's not, it's not serving the public. It doesn't serve public health goals. We have, you know, former prosecutors who are supportive of it because they understand that this, it just doesn't make any sense to criminalize a health matter in that way what and people other... certainly have pushed back on it but not in the way i ever you know i don't think we ever anticipated necessarily you know a 90 to 9 vote in the house but i'm so glad that legislators understand what we're saying which is we want people to get tested like yeah. we want to be able to have conversations and we don't want people who are already marginalized even further marginalized and having their status weaponized against them and put into prison we don't need more people in prison. I I scanned over the bill, the the language in the bill itself, and there there was there are sections in there about disclosure and you know as far as like in in a health setting like with your doctor. Can you explain what changes are being proposed to that, whatever existing system is in place right now, as far as disclosure? If you if you end up in the hospital and they test you and they find out that you have it, what are the changes? I know there was some language in there about that. I have to be honest. I'm not sure which part of the bill you're talking about with that. Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot in there, but there was something in there about the fact that like, you don't have to dis like, you don't have to disclose it. So, so I think, okay. So I think the part of the bill was this, it was, you know, if you uh, are found to have HIV and I guess you're, you're obligated to report it to other people that you came into contact I see with. what you're saying. Right. right. Yes, we don't want to force people to have to be criminalized for not disclosing. So it's a straight repeal of of anything related to transmission potential transmission having a criminal penalty. So it's it's just removing things out of the criminal code. Okay. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it, but <laughs> I I don't know. I brought I brought this up because it is so such a, you know, I mean, it's like a 
it's a touchy subject. I mean, it's, there's a lot of stigma against HIV just because, you know, when we were growing up, it was like a terrible, very scary. You hear about it all the time. Like it's a death sentence. Like if, you know, I mean, there's, there's protocols in place, like getting pricked or, you know, there's a lot of different things, you know, that, that, that come into play with that. And when I brought it up to people, they were like, oh my God, like, why would they do that? Why would they change that? Is there a possibility that there might be unintended consequences to this where things get out of whack here for the majority of people like they would want to know if somebody that they had sex with text positive for HIV I mean say if they have kids or that you know I mean there's a lot of things that could come up there that maybe I mean the bulk of the law was was basically criminalizing transmission primarily through sex, sexual contact. I mean, that's, and that's how it was used. Although there was a case where someone spit in the general direction of a police officer and was still charged with, which you can't pass HIV through spit. Right. That's not possible. But no, I don't think people are going to all of a sudden say, well, this law is gone. Now I don't have to disclose and I can just be free willing and willy nilly. I think what it will, what, the consequences could be is that more people get tested and more people have those conversations because if you don't know your status, you can't be charged. So why would I get tested? Yeah. A lot of people probably wouldn't get tested if they didn't have some sort of feeling that they might've been exposed. So they might pass it on unwillingly and not even knowing that they have it as well. It might increase the amount of AIDS, right? Or HIV. it, It could. I mean, I think also but it's also not the only communicable disease. I mean, we're in the right, middle of sure. a pandemic that's a very communicable that's, disease. Yeah, that's why it brings, right? it brings it to mind. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like- And if you didn't get a COVID test and you don't know you have COVID, well, then you didn't do anything wrong because right. you didn't know you had COVID. Right. So I, yeah, no, I don't think, I mean, that is, and we definitely heard from people in lots of marginalized communities who are like, oh my God, people are going to be just- especially like older folks who lived through the eighties and nineties and, and lost people. But that isn't, that just isn't a likely outcome at all that people will just all of a sudden the reins will be off and (laughs) and there'll be this like spike in HIV cases. The purpose of it is to protect public health and to encourage people to see HIV as as a health issue, as, you know, part of, part of being, having a human body instead of having, you know, and we, it's decriminalization of transmission is just the first step. And then we have to address stigma and talking about it as if it's so different from any Well, it's a more, it's a lot more serious than getting, you know, the flu, I would say. I mean, it's a forever disease. It is, but it's also a lot more manageable now. I mean, if you go on PrEP, your viral load can be completely undetectable and you can't transmit HIV. What if you're you're in poverty and you're on the street and you don't even go to the doctor? That is actually why we didn't, instead of changing the law, why we wanted to do a straight repeal. Because if we put in, unless you're on PrEP and that would still leave the most marginalized people in harm's way. Yeah, because it seems like it would it would directly target people uh, that don't have exactly as right. much as many resources. And that's what it does now, how it is today. It's, it's, it's all, yeah, it, it's you know I think of the, the 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 reasoning behind some of these things sometimes, and and I you know there's always a dark side to some of this stuff where. You know, you'd never know the intentions of the people writing these bills because these 
consequences are very bad. You know what I mean? This is really serious. Like you're, you're talking about hurting specifically the people that you're setting out to protect, which is, I could talk about this all day, as you can tell, very interested. Hopefully everybody else is too. I really appreciate you, you know, coming on, you know, is there, can you tell us about, I know we talked about, you know, the Chicago house itself. Can you tell us about what's going on, how you can sign up if you need help? What are the services you provide briefly? Just give us your pitch. So if you are a trans and gender expansive person and you need legal services, we primarily serve people living in Cook County, but some cases we do statewide. So you can go to chicagohealth.org and get information about our program there. And all of our other services are listed on the website if you um, are looking for someone living with HIV or AIDS and looking for services, you can go there too. Okay. And again, that's uh, chicagohouse.org slash translife dash care, or it's hyphen care. You know the whole URL. I people <laughs> to the website. Thank you. Copy and paste, copy and paste. Yeah. But Elizabeth Ricks, Legal Director, Staff Attorney, Translife Care Program, Chicago House, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. So thank you so much for having me.